I'm happy to announce a new series called Heroes of the Faith. We're going to be looking at about eight different personalities from today all the way until Easter Sunday. And uh, we're doing this for a couple different reasons. Number one, we want people to get familiar with their Bible. We want people to get familiar with the personalities of the Bible and to realize that they're not too different from us. They had times of high belief, high shelf belief, and they had times of low shelf belief too, where they had to be pulled out of the gutter and be told to obey. I also want to do this series because it's a real good point of encouragement. Encouragement for you to know that you're important, that God loves you, but that you too can walk in faith and be obedient even though we live in a very unrighteous culture. You can stand firm in the faith and you can follow after Jesus Christ. You can do this. You can walk faith and you can live up to the standards of Jesus Christ. Our kind of uh, motto, our theme for this whole text, for this whole uh, series has been this text from Hebrews chapter 12, looking at verse 1. It says this, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and, uh, let us, and, and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Now, it starts out with therefore, and I think you need to realize, therefore, what therefore is, why we have the scripture there, because it starts out, therefore, since... Uh, we need to find out what it's there for. And if you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, you find out that what the writer of Hebrews is actually talking about is this great hall of fame of faith that's found in Hebrews 11 about these important men and women of the Bible that just gave themselves over to God and did some miraculous and powerful things because of God's strength in them. And um, what the Bible's saying is, let us, let, us, let us act in their shadow. Let us work within their lives. Let us do the things that they have done. Let us throw off everything that hinders us and let's run this race. And it's important to know that, that the Bible talks about our faith, our journey, not as a walk with the Lord, but more as a race with the Lord. Like you're running through the finish line and you're completely exhausted because you've just ran the race. And at the point of death, you're saying, whoo, I gave every ounce of energy there to you, God, uh, that I had on earth. And, and now I'm, I'm walking this line and I've come through this line and, and I'm exhausted from the race that I ran. It's John Maxwell, a very popular author that has a book called Running with the Giants, and he has this kind of encapsulation of what Hebrews 12 is about, and he says that in the faith, we are running this race, and we're kind of these people that are on this track in the middle of a giant stadium, like in the Olympics, and, and those that are uh, witnesses, this cloud of witnesses are in the crowd, and the crowd of witnesses are people that are made up that have long ago been faithful to the Lord. People like Noah and Abraham and Moses and Esther and Ezekiel and, and, and Samuel and Samson. And all these guys are in the crowds. And if you've ever been in a sporting arena and you've been on the field and there's been a big crowd present, you'll know that you really can't identify each individual voice that's being said. It just sounds like white noise, just like that. And so what would it be like? This is Maxwell's idea. What would it be like if one of those guys came out of the stands and they came to where you were running the race of your faith and got in the, the lane next to you and could whisper something in your ear for one lap? What would they say to you? How would they encourage your life? And today I want to look at Noah. What would Noah say to us as we run this race and we're living it for Christ and we know it's a difficult race? I mean, some of you are really tired now. And we're running this thing, and we're trying to stay within our lane, standing within the parameters of Jesus Christ, the standards of Christ. What would Noah say to us if he could get out of the cloud of witnesses, come down here and talk to us? Maybe he'd say something like, kind of hokey, like, don't miss the boat, you know? Uh, Maybe he'd say, just stick with it. Matt, don't be afraid. I I know you don't know what's on the journey ahead, but don't be afraid. Or how about this? Plan ahead. Those are things that Noah could easily said. 
And so what I want to do is look through the story of Noah today, apply some things to our life, and do it on a very simple basis and and a very biblical basis as well. So open with me to Genesis chapter 6, if you would. I think there is a kind of a a misunderstanding when you open up your Bible to Genesis that you think from that moment, because you read about Adam and Eve and the creation, that you're just going to chronologically walk through the Bible and and sometimes we, as Bible students, get to the Bible and we say, well, I'm going to read the Bible and that will give me a good history of who God is. And that's true. But you think that maybe that it's chronological, like Genesis to Revelation, everything's going to be in perfect order, like a timeline of history. But that's not true. You can think of this Bible like the Carnegie Library, and you can think of it as different sections of the library. And within this Bible are these 66 books that make up this library, and it's organized into categories. Like one category, the category that we're in today in Genesis, is the category of history. And there's books of the Bible that just deal with history. There's another category of poetry and another category of prophecy. And there's category of the Gospels that tell of Jesus' story. There's the category of letters that were written to the churches called the epistles. And these are all different libraries, sections of the library that are found within our Bible. So don't, don't get into the Bible and say, I'm going to read this thing from front to back and I'm going to get a detailed timeline of, of how God has worked through history to redeem people like you and me because it's going to skip around a lot on you. And what we see in Genesis 6 is a thousand years have taken place since Genesis 1 to Genesis 6. It just takes up five chapters. Isn't it funny? A thousand years takes up five chapters of the Bible and we get to see Noah's story come on the scene and then you hear about Noah and the great flood and, and let me just kind of give you a timeline where that is. The timeline of Noah's flood is somewhere around 1,653 B.C. So if you're putting that into terms, the time of creation, there was 1,600-some years that had passed until the flood had happened. So humanity had been on the earth for about 1,653 years, and then this flood of judgment comes upon the people. And that's where we see Noah. That's where we see his family. Noah has a wife. It's not Joan of Arc. It's not. Uh, we don't know her name. He's got three boys, Shem, Him, and Jepheth. And he's got some daughter-in-laws that are a part of this family. And there's Noah and there's God. And this is the biggest God story that you're going to see in the early part uh, of Genesis as it relates to humankind. You know, Noah lived to be 950 years old. And there's so much about this story that you can look at and say, such a wise tale, so fanciful. But did you know that every major religion and secular history has some kind of flood story a part of it. And just so you're aware of this, every name of the person that was saved from the flood has a derivative of the name of Noah. All this history goes back to some guy. It's almost like somebody long ago said, hey, I'm not sure what the guy's name was, Nua, Nua, Nuea, but uh, there's a big flood or something. And it happened like, you know, seven, 800 years ago. And then Jewish history had told the story correct. Friends, I believe this with all my heart to be true, that there was a worldwide flood. I mean, God can easily do something like this and has done something like this. Noah lived 950 years old. His granddaddy has the uh, Guinness Book of World Records for the oldest man who ever lived, Methuselah. You ever heard someone say, you're as old as Methuselah? Well, that's 969 years old. That guy lived a long time. And you're saying, well, we don't live like that anymore. That's why I don't see this story to be true. We don't live like that anymore because there's so much disease and decay in our world. It's just kind of snowballed down the hill from the time of Adam. And in that time, there wasn't rain. There was health. There was a great prosperity for the body. But you're going to find out that after the flood happens, that all that longevity of life ends. 
People aren't living to 900 years old. They're not living to 200 years old. Uh, Moses, for example, he lived to 120 years old and then kaput, that was it. And since that time, kind of lifespan's been decreasing. It's been going up and down, but you know, we're, we're not guaranteed a certain time. I mean, if some of the in this room lives to 100, we're going to applaud that and celebrate it. But that is an achievement to be able to breathe and to live that long and have your body hold out on you. And so during the time of Noah, there was great wickedness. And the world was like a cesspool of evil. And then here's this guy that decides to go against the grain of all of, of, all of that. Have you found out that when you go against the grain, sometimes your life gets splintered? And you take some barbs, you take some shots, and, and not everybody agrees with the lifestyle that you're living when you go against the grain. And here's this world that's doing evil things. And, and Noah says, I'm not going to do evil. And at that time, since the world was so corrupt, God looked down upon the world and he began to examine the hearts of all the men and women. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, you see what God sees in the hearts of men. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I love how Eugene Peterson phrases this. He says, that all men thought about, all women thought about at that time was their self, and all they thought about was evil, 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 evil all the time. There wasn't an ounce of goodness that they could come up with that was for other people or for God. And clearly, this was a time in society where they had neglected God, they had neglected God's laws, neglected God's standards, they forgot about God, but obviously, friends, God had not forgot about them. Would you please remember that point? you run away from the standards of God because it becomes difficult for you and you feel removed from God and you feel like he doesn't care that God still cares he still loves and the reason why you feel so disconnected is because you've ran away like the prodigal and the father waits for you with open arms to to receive you and welcome you back friends today why don't you come back to the father and receive him again even though you've ran away from him and your heart had been bent maybe on selfishness or evil. Notice verse 6 of chapter 6. The Lord regretted. That is such a tough, powerful word, isn't it? The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. I don't know how to encapsulate this to you, but it carries with it the same connotations of that you would look at a child and you'd say, I regret the day you were born. And God says, I regret Regret having made you. God's heart was deeply troubled. We don't think about it often like this. But that word deeply troubled means that God grieved. You see, he looked down at the hearts and the souls and the minds of men and women. He realized they weren't going to change. He had given them every opportunity to love, and he knew no matter how much love he threw their way or how much forgiveness or grace, they weren't going to accept it because they were so selfish in their ways. And God says, I, I just regret this. I regret that it's come to this. And his heart grieves. Friends, you don't grieve over something you don't love. His heart was grieving and was full of pain because he loved humanity and he didn't want him to see him go this direction. He didn't want to see him go down this evil path. And it breaks God's heart because he knows what has to happen next. There's got to be a source of judgment. God is just. God is right. God is correct. He's just. There's got to be judgment for the evil that's to come. And knowing their hearts, he says these words in verse 7. So here's what the Lord says. I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. 
and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. And For I, here's the word again, I just regret that I've made them. But like a pinhole of light in the darkness, like a flashlight that pierces through Marengo Cave. There's Noah. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Skip down to verse 9, about the middle way through. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Do you catch what it says about Noah? When everybody was doing wrong, Noah says, I'm going to do what's right. I don't care what everybody else is doing. I'm going to live for God. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be pain along the journey. But I'm going to follow after the God who loves me. And he follows after God. And four times you see in this whole story that God commanded Noah to do something. And four times Noah immediately obeyed God. And that's kind of one of those things that shows you love, friends. If you want to know kind of where you stand, your love for God, like how much do I love God? When he calls you to do something, how quick are you to obey it? Is there first time obedience that takes place? Or does God have to keep getting your attention until you finally come around to do it? Love has to do with response and immediacy. And I love the phrase that's said about Noah. He walked faithfully with God. I don't know what that means. I don't know if he had a daily devotional time. I don't know if he walked in the Garden of Eden like with God, like Adam and Eve walked with God. I I just know this, that that sets up for us that he and God had a relationship with one another, that they weren't disconnected. And even though he probably did sin, there was sin in Noah's life, he didn't allow sin to stop the relationship. He would move forward in his faith. He'd keep running the race with perseverance. But here's what God decides. Noah, I'll save you. We'll build an ark, a big boat, where we can put uh, some animals into of all kinds, and we can put you and your family into, and we can save you, and through you, there can be this lineage of salvation all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. But the rest of humanity, I've looked at their heart, and they're sinful, and there's going to be judgment. And so turn with me to chapter 7 and look at verse 17. It says, For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And God said, A flood, the springs of the deep opened up, and And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth and hundreds of thousands, millions of people perished that day as the flood of God's judgment crept over the earth. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking of all the animals. You're taking account all the animals and and you're thinking of Noah and you're thinking about a boat and you're thinking, how is that possible? And you're thinking, this has got to be a made up story. This is fanciful stuff. Here's what I want to say to you that just kind of discount this thing and throw it aside. Just because it doesn't fit into your mind and your imagination doesn't mean that it wasn't possible for God. Just because my mind is limited to the ability and the creative thought and what things can do of power does not limit what God can do and has already done. I heard about a little girl that went to Sunday school. She 
had just heard about Jonah and the big fish. She went to school on Monday, and the teacher just happened to be talking about mammals, especially whales, and talking about the size and the scope of them, how big they were. And the little girl said, you know what? I bet you that God sent a whale to swallow Jonah and then to spit him out at Nineveh. The teacher said, no, honey, that can't happen. I mean, whales might be huge, but to swallow a human being and then to survive, that, that mammal couldn't do that. And for the man to survive and be spit out, that, honey, that's not possible. The, woman, the little girl said, well, I, that's what the Bible said. That's what my teacher taught me. The teacher said, oh, boy. No, that's not, honey, that couldn't have happened. It's physically impossible. The little girl just said, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah what happened. The teacher said, well, what if he's not in heaven? The little girl said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> okay, so... We accept this as godly believers, as biblical truth, that this happened, this is foundational, that things probably like the Grand Canyon, other things were cut out, and and the earth was radically changed uh, after the flood. But here's what Noah would say if he came out of the stands. Here's what I think he would say if he came out of the stands and ran one lap with us of faith. I think Noah would say one man can make a difference. He certainly did. I mean, one man can make a difference. I know you don't feel this way. I know that you feel like a, a small fish in a big pond, but you can make a splash in this life. You have meaning and your life has importance here. God did not create you to, so that you could do nothing. You have a lot of meaning and, and, and your life matters here. You know, Noah's, Noah's life, his story is quoted twice in the New Testament. Once by Jesus in the book of Matthew, another time by the apostle Peter in, in 1 Peter. But here's what Jesus says about Noah. Because in the days of Noah, it was so evil, it was so corrupt, and there was only one saving grace, the ark that God had provided. We call that a plan of salvation, the ark. Jesus says these words about that time of Noah. He says, no one will know the day or the hour. So he's equating Noah's day with the time in which he'll come back and return the end of times. Friends, at the end of times, there's going to be another judgment, like the flood of judgment that took over the Old Testament. There's going to be a flood of judgment that comes for our lives too. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Don't come to me and tell me you know when Christ is going to return. Not the day or the hour. Jesus doesn't even know. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Meaning, people were thinking that they had all the time in the world to get their house in order, to get their life together. They thought they had tomorrow. And verse 39 says, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. They saw the waters creeping and said, whoa, wait a minute here. We may not have a tomorrow. And that's how it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I want you to understand that we, as Christians, will know the, the season. Just like a woman knows when she is about ready to deliver a child, there are labor pains Jesus equates his coming to. I think Christians, we're not going to be caught aware like, like a thief in the night. We are going to know the season, at least the times of when Christ is going to come. And, and just as Noah understood that things were wicked and bad in his day and age, and there needed to be some cleansing of the earth, we know, I think inherently now, that things are getting progressively worse in this world. That morality doesn't seem to be getting better right now. It seems to be getting worse. I don't know if we're in the days of Noah. I don't know how evil men and women's hearts are. I just know this, that as I look at the scope of this world, I don't see, and I'm so pessimistic, I don't see anything getting better. I don't see people really wanting to take a stand for Jesus Christ. I don't see church people saying, I love the Lord, and when there is injustice in the world, going and trying to make something just out of the injustice, we just kind of say, isn't that too bad? Hey, we need to pray. We need to pray for him. In prayer, there's power. 
But man, when you can have some action, when you can have some hands and feet and mouths there, there's power too. One person can make a difference. And that's what Noah would say. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he made some tracks where other people didn't want to walk. He was faithful to God when everyone was against God. So how can your life make a difference? Well, your life can make a difference in your family. For sure your life can make a difference in your family. If you're a follower of Christ, you could be the salt and the light in your household. You can make a difference in the life of those around you. I mean, your life is affecting people. It is affecting people. It's not, am I influencing somebody? You are influencing somebody. Just what are you doing? How are you influencing them? Positively or negatively? Are you influencing them with a godly lifestyle or an ungodly lifestyle? Your life has influence whether you recognize it or not. And I, I love, I love what it says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. No, I didn't find your wife righteous. I didn't find your kids righteous. I didn't find your daughters-in-law righteous. Noah, I found you righteous. And your, your righteousness, your righteousness has rubbed off on your family. I found you righteous, and because of that, I'm going to save them. And if you get in the book of Acts, you can begin to correlate this together. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And I know some have thought, if I'm a believer, then the rest of my household will be saved because I have sanctified my home. That's not what this is getting at. The word for household is the word oikos. It's a Greek word which just means influence, your sphere of influence. The people that are in your world, you'll, you'll, you'll rub off. Your salvation will become contagious. You'll begin to set brush fires of faith in the lives of people. People will say, I want what that guy's got. He's, he's different. And you see, your influence is, is primarily in your household. Do you know that there's been some studies about our influence? And the people that we have a sphere of influence around, the bare minimum is 12 people a week. We influence a minimum of 12 people a week and probably a maximum of no more than 17 people a week. And here's how they judge influence. They judge influence by if you talk to somebody or a group of people for more than an hour out of the week. Now, before you think, oh, no way, I've got that covered easy because I've got like 40 people I can influence, let me just tell you a a sobering statistic. Fathers, in today's generation, it's been documented, talk to their their children for only seven minutes a day. That's not time spent with them. Time spent with them is 35 minutes a day. Talk to their children seven minutes a day. Now, you add that up, seven times seven, 49. Dad, some of your kids are not in your circle of influence. Our circle of influence has to do with people that are around us and we communicate to. And Noah says, look, when it came to my family, I set the standard, man. People were doing wrong. I was doing right. Anyone who came in contact with me knew I wasn't going to be bent on evil. I was on the straight and narrow for God. Someone said that Noah preached 120 years and he only saved seven people. That doesn't seem like good statistics as a preacher. Let me tell you who those seven people were. One was his wife, three were his kids, and three were his daughter-in-laws. That's pretty good stuff. I want my whole household to get to heaven, to be with Christ, and to be with me in heaven together. And I think that's pretty good preaching right there. 
If you can't affect those immediately around you, who are you going to affect? Friends, you have influence. And it's either positive or it's negative. You can make a difference in your family. Your faith can make a difference in your family. Here's the second way we can make a difference. Let's make a difference in our generation. Because we don't think about it this way because there's two, two tricks of Satan that he wants to use against us. One trick is that the selfishness attitude, the selfishness of man. Satan just uses this like, just think about you for a minute. Don't care about that. That doesn't affect you. You need to spend some alone time here. How about the other scheme of Satan that he uses in that you can't make a difference? You're not important enough. You don't have the skills. You don't have the talent. You don't have the energy. You don't have the time. You don't have the resources. You can't get it done. Those are tricks of Satan. You can make a difference in this generation. I love what the Bible says about David, King David. In Acts chapter 13, 36, it says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, then he fell asleep. You catch this? David had a purpose. And it wasn't that it was like a marked thing. He's saying, look, he had a time and date in history where he was supposed to arrive, do his thing, and then then we'll put him to sleep, which is a nice way to say death. Friends, you have that same kind of purpose. God's put you in this generation for a reason. He's called you to himself for a purpose. And I know it's not easy to navigate these waters. I know sometimes it can seem like a raging uh, torrent of secular thought coming at us. I get that. But God has called us to live right in this wrong world right now. When I was a in college, the last year of college, I spent some time on this farmhouse where I had lived and on the southwest corner of the property were these two huge oak trees. They must have been living for at least a century or so. And there was a ton of other trees that surrounded the, the house because there was just farm ground all around and there was no protective cover but this line of trees. And huge storms would come across the middle of Illinois and, and trees would just be completely uprooted and the weaker trees would break off limbs or totally fall over. But these two oaks, well, they're like oaks. They just didn't move. They stayed firmly planted, and we were just constantly amazed by the battering these things would take. And one day we were outside, it was kind of early spring, and this kind of a nice spring breeze was kind of steadily across the open fields there, and we were just taking in the warmth. And then we heard this crash of breaking limbs and dirt and earth being uprooted, and we ran over to the southwest corner of the property where the noise came from, and one oak tree had fallen against the other oak tree, and both of those oak trees had fallen down. There wasn't a great wind. There wasn't a mighty storm. It was just a constant breeze that had knocked those things over. There's a whole ton of application you can go there. But it seems to me that when things get bad in this world and the storms hit us of life, we know where to go and to take refuge into Christ, into the arms of God. We fall back. We take refuge into God. Most people know that. I mean, when there's tragedy, this place fills up. But in the constant breeze... And the stiff wind of culture is where we find ourselves toppling over and losing our spiritual equilibrium and and falling over completely. It's not in the storms that we lose it. It's like in the daily grind that we forget about our faith and that God has called us to righteousness. Friends, God needs people right now in this generation to stand up and to live for him. And listen closely, please, because if, if no one in your row right now is listening, would you be that person? God 
knows we can make a difference in our family and in our generation, and we can make a difference in his kingdom. We can make a difference for God. Because God is looking for people that he can enlist and that he can secure as marked people for him to do some impressive things for him. He's looking into our hearts. He's challenging us to live to a higher standard, the high road, the narrow road. Second Chronicles says that the Lord searches all the earth for people who have given themselves completely to him. I mean, just not partially, completely like, God, I'm all yours. And he says, I want to make them strong. I want to make them strong. Sometimes we feel like, God, I'm too weak to go out and, and to really take a stand. I'm just, I'm fearful. I'm not the guy that you want. I can't handle this stuff. I don't, God says, I'll make you strong. It's not by your strength that you do these things. I'm the guy that's going to give you the strength. God just says, I'm just looking for someone that completely loves me here. And when you completely love me and you go out, I'll make you strong. You don't worry about the strength stuff. I got enough for the both of us. How about the book of Ezekiel? In the book of Ezekiel, God looks around again in chapter 22. And he says, I look for someone who might rebuild the wall of the righteousness that stands in the land. He's looking for someone that's just willing to do what is right. He says, I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. And here's the sad part. But I found no one. God looked at that generation. He looked all around. He tried to find somebody whom would be righteous and who would carry the flame of faith for him, the torch of faith forward. And he says, I couldn't find a soul in that generation that was willing to take a stand. You can make a difference for God and his kingdom when you rise up and live for righteousness just like Noah did. Quickly, here's some things we can learn from Noah's life. Number one is don't be afraid to stand out in the crowd. I think chances are God's going to give you something to do that you think are pretty foolish and that the world thinks is foolish too. But God has a way of using foolish things to shame the wise. And I think to be a difference maker, you've got to be, be a different person to be a difference maker. And if you're not a different person, you're not going to make much of a difference in the lives of people. 120 years it took Noah to build this boat. And, and he did it in a place that was completely dry and without rain. That would be like me saying, guys, let's go build a boat, an ocean liner back here in this field back here. Everybody would think we were crazy. Can you imagine the ridicule that Noah got from late night comedians of his time? I mean, all of his neighbors would come. You, you got to check out what my neighbor's doing. This guy's nuts, man. I mean, he's been building this thing for 80 years. And he's still not done with it. I don't know if he'll ever get done with it. There's probably barns that have big paintings on them come see noah's ark five miles you know and it becomes a like a a place where you for tourists to come and to visit and just to ridicule him but noah stayed steadfast and faithful and he stood out amongst the crowd everybody wanted to know what he was doing but he stood up and he was recognized for god god had asked him to do it and he did friends stand out of the crowd I don't know what that means for you. It could be the next time that you go to a movie that you know has a rating probably that you shouldn't really be at. And you think, oh, I'll give it a try. And the scene starts to go blue and bad and you know it's not the kinds of things that God wants in here to stand up and to get out of there. And you may not be making a stand to anybody else but to yourself. This is not the kind of filth I want to invade my heart. Maybe taking a stand for you is... When someone calls up and they just have a bunch of gossip to tell you and you finally can say, you know what, we're just not going to talk about that today. And if that's what you want to talk about, I, I just can't continue this conversation right now. 
Don't be afraid to stand out in the crowd. Maybe you're being persuaded at work to do something unethical or to fudge the numbers or do something that you know is wrong. And and maybe it might mean costing your job. I mean, Noah would say, move forward in righteousness. Stand up out of the crowd. Here's the second thing. Don't be afraid to try something for the first time. I mean, here's Noah, and God's asking him to build this huge ocean liner in his backyard. No boat has ever been built this big ever. And for centuries later, no boat has ever come close to the same size. 500 feet in length. Almost two football fields in length. This thing is gigantic. Like 522 railroad boxcars could fit in this thing. That's a million and a half square Uh, cubit feet of space. This is a gigantic undertaking. It's beyond his scope of imagination. Here God's saying, I want you to do something for the first time, Noah. I want you to build me something. It's going to save you. It's going to save these animals. It's going to take perseverance. It's going to take time, but but it's all going to pay off in the end. No one's ever done anything like this before. And you know what I love about Noah and his story is he faithfully obeys this. Because here's kind of the point of this part. What Noah was being asked to do was wild, it was harebrained, it was outside of the scope of human understanding. But the one who asked him had never let him down before. Catch this. Who was asking Noah to build the ark? It wasn't his wife, right? Because if it was his wife, it would never get none. It wasn't his employer, because if it was his employer, it would have taken him like 1,200 years to do it. God was the one. God was the one that asked him to build the boat. And since God asked him to build the ark, he immediately did it. Even though never had been done before. He says, God, I know you've never let me down. You've never let me down. You've always been faithful. You're the one who's asking me. I think it's crazy. But God, since you're the one who asked me, I'm going to follow through with it because you're faithful. And I know through your strength we can get this thing done. I don't know what God's put on your heart, what kind of ministry, what something to do that's for his glory that you think is just so outlandish, so incredible, such a huge monumental undertaking. You're saying, God, no one's ever done it like this. And God's saying, exactly. God, people are going to call me a fool. God says, I use foolish things to shame the wise. Don't be afraid to try something for the first time. And lastly, don't forget that God's with you. If you get into Genesis chapter 9, you look at verse 11, there's what's called the Noahic Covenant. It's a covenant that God made with Noah. This is not a contract. It can't be broken. Covenants are everlasting for all time. And what God does with Noah, he says, after the floodwaters recede and they go and they begin to repopulate the earth, God says, look, Noah, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky and that's going to be a reminder to you that never again will I flood the whole earth in this way. I won't do it. Because can't you see it like every time it would start to rain, Noah would say, "Uh uh-oh, back in the boat. So God calms his fears. That's what a rainbow's doing. Isn't that neat? God's calming his fears. Every time you see a rainbow out there, you remember that Noah looked at that thing and said, I don't have to get back in the boat. God promised me that that was a one-time event. God provided me salvation. And God says, every time you see that rainbow, you remember what I've done. This is so corny, I know, and this is not really like me, but you think every time we could see a rainbow, we could remember God? Not the pot of gold at the end, but God. Say, this is remembrance 
that God is here and He's in this world and this world might be corrupt and it might seem like every single day things might be progressively getting worse and you might be just looking at things like it's bleak and God says, look at this rainbow, let me remind you that I'm here and I'm with you and like Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'm with you to the very end of the age. May we be reminded through that little symbol that floats in the sky after the pouring rain that God is good and His promises last forever, like promises of salvation. (laughs) You get in the boat, you get in the boat knowing you do what I say, you're going to be saved. Come to Christ. Have your sins forgiven, you're going to be saved. Covenants. God says, I'm not going to break these things. I don't care how many times Noah sins. I don't care what Noah's kids do afterwards. That rainbow is going to remind me of the covenant I made with you. I keep my promises. I'm a good God. You know, in the book of 1 Peter, I said there are two people that reference Noah. That was Jesus and Matthew, and there was Peter. Here's how Peter references the time of Noah. In verse 18 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he says, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Notice the difference. But what Christ did and what took place in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, the righteous were saved and the unrighteous were killed. What took place that was different with Jesus? The righteous was killed and the unrighteous was saved. And then he goes on to explain the waters of Noah's flood in Peter. And he has this like uh, exegetical sermon of Genesis 6 that's like much shorter than the sermon you just heard now. And he says, the water of Noah's day symbolized baptism. This is what Peter says. It's not like my fanciful rendition. This is what Peter says. The waters of Noah's day that covered the earth and cleansed it are like the waters of baptism for us that now save you, not the removal of dirt. I'm not talking about cleaning up your body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The water's not saving you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ to save you. That's last week's stuff. And you can see it in Noah, the picture of Noah, can't you? You follow my plan, Noah, you'll be saved. You just follow the plan. You be obedient to the plan. And Noah got into the plan and he got into the boat. And you remember who shut the door? Do you remember? I know we didn't talk about it. Do you remember who shut the door in that story of that ark? God shut the door to the ark. Sealed him in tight and said, No, here comes the flood of judgment. I've sealed you up. I've given you a plan. I'm saving you. I'm saving your family. We're going to get a new start on this thing together. And the flood of God's judgment comes. And the evil is rocked away off the earth. And Noah is buoyed above all that dirt and corruption and sin. And it's, all that stuff's just left underneath the water. And there he comes back up out of that. And Peter says, isn't that a lot of like baptism? When we come to Christ and we give ourselves over to him and we call him Lord and Savior and we're buried and all that cesspool of stuff and the junk and the dirt of life, the sin, and the guilt is just left there. And we get buoyed back up like with the saving ark of Jesus Christ to be redeemed, to be made right, and to be pure. God says, that story of Noah is your story. A story of redemption, of a second chance, a story of salvation. 
to be obedient to God and to follow his plan. You say, what's the plan? The plan is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be baptized into him and to repent of your sins and to follow after God.